Welcome to Return to Roshar, where we speak again the ancient oaths by going through Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight books and put everything into a wider Cosmere context. So, a spoiler warning is in effect for every Cosmere book published at the time of this recording, and that means up through Rhythm of War for now. I'm one of your three hosts today, Leia. We also have Kevin. Hi, I'm Kevin. And Murtaugh. Hi, I'm Murtaugh. So in this episode, we'll be discussing the prologue for Rhythm of War, and this centers around Navani's perspective of the night that Gavilar was assassinated. There's potential trigger warnings for abusive behaviors in this episode. We'll put timestamps on when you can skip forward if you don't want to listen to that material. In this chapter, we see Navani doing various things as far as administration work to get the feast up and running and actually successful. We see a lot of anxiety and stress from her perspective on how much she has to take on single-handedly while Gavilar does whatever he feels like doing. Throughout this chapter, we see those types of interactions between the two of them and the strains between their relationship. We also find out that we see Gavilar discussing things with Nail and Collect, two heralds, and they also warn that Ash is somewhere in the building. After he dismisses his friends, we get a lot more of their deep anger and resentment towards each other and their relationship. And there's a lot more nitty-gritty details that we'll be providing just for you guys today. So this is the fourth prologue with Navani, as Kevin just eloquently described. And I will go ahead and read us into the chapter. To pretend. Seven years ago. Of course the Parshendi wanted to play their drums. Of course Gavilar had told them they could. And of course he hadn't thought to warn Navarre. Have you seen the size of those instruments? Maratham said, running her hands through her black hair. Where will we put them? And we're already at capacity after your husband invited all the foreign dignitaries. We can't. We'll set up a more exclusive feast in the upper ballroom, Navani said, maintaining a calm demeanor, and put the drums there with the king's table. Everyone else in the kitchens was close to panicking. Assistant cooks running one direction or another, pots banging, in anticipation sprint, shooting up from the ground like streamers. Gavilar had invited not only the High Princes, but their relatives. And every High Lord in the city, and he wanted a double-sized beggar's feast. And now... Drums? I'll cut it off there. The drums are one of the things that I noticed pop up in every single perspective as I was going through them. And that was kind of how I was able to identify certain aspects, too, in terms of, like, the timing of certain things. You see the Parshendi setting up their drums in every single perspective in some capacity. So it's a good thing to kind of know in each viewpoint that we see those drums being set up and they're explicitly described over and over again. Yeah, it's a good marker on where we are in the timeline. So there's two major things that we're going to be focusing on as we go through this chapter. One is the abusive relationship that Gavilar has towards Navani. And the second one is kind of the more world building discussions of the heralds and their association with the Sons of Honor and some of the things that they're trying to do with Gavilar. So was there anything, Kevin and Murtaugh, that you guys wanted to kick off with about the abusive relationship of Gavilar to Navani? Where to start? (laughs) (laughs) 
Gavilar is a dickhead, and it appears that Navani's the only one that knows. Yeah, he somehow kept it secret. Yeah, and it was such a shock the first time you read this, because up until this prologue, when you first came through, you just thought Gavilar was this wonderful person who was embodying the codes of the Wave Kings. <laughs> Turns out he's a massive asshole. And technically the first choice for the bondsmith if he hadn't died. Mm-hmm. Since he was getting the visions first, which is even weirder. Yes. Yeah. So it seems Navani makes clear that he wasn't always like this. They used to work together. They used to be a team. But something changed him. And do you think that was the visions? I always wondered if the visions were actually what started him on the conquest. Like that whole idea to even unify. That's everything that Dalinar was always talking about is unite them. So I always wondered if that was the case. But maybe it was him becoming more Cosmere aware. Like maybe when he kind of realized that he can be talking to these heralds and figuring out that there's other worlds and kind of realizing he doesn't have to just stay there. I I wonder if maybe that's where he kind of, his perspective shift and he's like, you're much smaller than you think you are. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to get more of his perspective in future books on the timeline of how things happen because it seems like as we're piecemealing things together, him meeting the Parshendi, becoming a member of the Sons of Honor, like all of that seems kind of jumbled into a close proximity so finding out that exact timeline will be interesting yeah future episode for sure (laughs) they talk about this throughout all the books too there is a time when he changed and it seemed to have came after the conquest Mm -hmm. so what was that event maybe it was the visions or maybe you just became that arrogant i'm I'm hanging out with heralds talking to me in back rooms we're making deals experiments so everything else or everyone became small to him well and specifically with respect to nirvana because it becomes very clear in this prologue that he just has an utter disdain for every single member of his family he hates his son he finds yasna annoying and petty it's just completely dismissive of Navani. Yeah, and Navani's the only one who realizes this when he treats his whole family like this. Mm-hmm. I think everybody has noticed a change in him, but he still presents this air to them. So like in the Yasna prologue, she sees that rebuke, but it seems like she says she took it as the rebuke that it was meant to be, indicating that she wasn't noticing any shift in his behavior. But I think just since Navani, that intimate relationship between husband and wife, between spouses, you know, they spend their most intimate times together, and she's the one that would just naturally see the shift in his behavior, possibly. And I just wanted to read really quickly, even though I hate reading from Gavilar's perspective, I think it's very telling of what he feels about her and also just the fact that it's the complete antithesis of what she actually is. He just refuses to see the wonderful person. Navani is one of my favorite characters, so ride or die with her. I just want to punch Gavilar in the face. But that being said, from the books, he goes, You aren't worthy, Navani. You claim to be a scholar, but where are your discoveries? You study light, but you are its opposite. A thing that destroys light. You spend your time wallowing in the mucks of the kitchens and obsessing about whether or not some insignificant light eyes recognizes the right lines on a map. These are not the actions of greatness. You are no scholar. You merely like being near them. You are no artifabrian. You are merely a woman who likes trinkets. You have no fame, accomplishment, or capacity of your own. Everything distinctive about you came from someone else. You have no power. You merely like to marry men who have it. 
That's harsh. And again, as we see through the rest of the book, and even in the previous books, like she is an artifabrian, like she does have her own fame. She's renowned for her ability as an artifabrian and as a leader. She is a leader. So it's just everything he says about her is completely untrue. Those two paragraphs, you know, just speak to the abusive nature that he has towards specifically Navani. It's very harsh. Mm-hmm. She mentions there are some nasty rumors floating around right now that she cheated on him. And I wonder, I mean, that's not an excuse to talk to somebody like that. Those are go-for-your-heart words. But he's bringing some anger on her like that. But it seems like, I don't know if you've ever been in a fight with a significant other and it gets really nasty and you just want to say something to hurt them because that's what you're feeling right now and people always feel terrible about it. Gavilar doesn't seem to feel terrible about it. He seems to be his real feelings. Well, and she even mentions that the next day she'll get flowers or jewelry or something, never an apology. And that's just token mentally abusive and verbally abusive behavior. She does say that he's never hit her. So she wasn't physically scared of him, but it's just this emotional attack that's constantly going on. Yeah, she says threats and comments have been made, but never any actual action, which, you know, I guess if we're going to tick up his pros and cons, being, I guess, uh, you never hit her, but at the same time, I mean, got a lot more to make up for, man. Man, he's just... But she almost insinuates yet. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, she thinks it's po- it's a very distinct possibility, and that's why she doesn't resist him, is she doesn't want to put him in a position where she feels the responsibility of, like, she's forcing it, which is, again, token point of mentally abused person is she doesn't want to do something that sets him off, so she's taking the responsibility of his mm-hmm. actions right then and there. Oh, and then continuing on with how she responds, and, like, she's just exhibiting the behavior of somebody who's on the receiving end of abusive behavior, do either of you want to cover the glyph that she writes and then her reaction to Gavilar's death? She's a very religious person. You know, one of the few Alethi that actually believes really in what they're doing and the foreignism instead of just going through the motions. And she writes a prayer for him die as a as a gift someone has the page open like i don't know exactly how prayer glyphs are supposed to go but it seems like it's a gift to her for gavilar to die yeah death gift death Mm -hmm. each glyph was drawn in the shape of gavilar's tower or sword heraldry as well so just like as specific as you can get like kill him for me please yeah This reminded me of when she wrote that glyph praying for Dalinar's return. When Sadius basically left them to die with the Parshendi, she wrote this big glyph and then burned it as a prayer. So definitely that faith in honor who's dead. Well, it's a difference in her feelings for sure, in size of glyphs <laughs> and meaning. Mm-hmm. But just the intricacies of both of them, I mean, both of them, so we'd already seen the one from Dalinar, but this one also, I think, specifically says, like, one of the most intricate things that she'd ever made. She just really put all that passion in there. And both times, she got her wish, so, you know, she's two yeah. for two on glyphs, as far as I'm concerned. She's got to burn some more. Yeah. And then, so she goes basically through the rest of the night. And then let's talk about when she finally finds out about his assassination. I thought it was an interesting and probably the right choice that she didn't know about anything until it was already done. I I feel like that's just like a reflection of just their own relationship as a whole. He's dead. You know, she doesn't have to watch. She doesn't have to see any of the action. She just has to clean up the mess after the fact, which just fit everything that she's kind of talked about up to that point. Yeah, good point. 
And then, of course, when she finally is informed, she goes to his body and checks through his pockets, basically, for the special gems with the light inside that she had seen previous. And they were already gone. And Gavilar, as we know from the Zeth chapter, had given him at least one of them. But we don't actually know if he only had the one at the time, and that's the one he gave away, or if the others had already been like handed out to like the other Sons of Honor in that meeting. But that's the only one that's left over. We know that he gave a Void Light one to Eshni when he met with her. That's true, yep, that's right. And then the Anti-Void Light is what he gave to... Seth yep. for safekeeping. Whether there were multiple ones, like you said, whether the Sons of Honor got the rest of them, it's unclear. But wanted to go into a little bit. When she was talking with Gavilar, she threatened him with ruining his legacy by writing the truths about him in the book. And she obviously does the opposite here. So Murtaugh, what do you think about that? It basically shows women's main weapon in a Lathi society is their ability to write and read. They, in fact, write the history books, which is interesting. And she's completely right about that. And she knows that's the one place she can hurt him, is his legacy that he cares so much about. So she just uses, like I said, those trying to hurt each other earlier in this conversation. This is the one thing she can really hurt him with. She doesn't have any other power. Do you guys have any thoughts about what his end goal was? Because obviously he's like, at that point, that's part of when he's like, you know, you don't even understand what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to undertake. Do you guys think he was trying to, like, become honor? Do you think it was just more about Refounding the Night's Radiant. Do you guys have any guesses as far as that's concerned? What he's trying to do to become something more, he's talking about becoming immortal. That That's what you're talking about right there, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that specifically, yeah. Either he's trying to become something like a herald, or he has even bigger dreams, like something like picking up a shard, something like that, now that he's Cosmere aware. Like, he's this conqueror. What's the biggest, grandest thing I can conquer? It's a shard. The Sons of Honor all seem to have their own individual goals, and it's very unclear. This is a great chance to switch to our next topic. So as Navani's listening into the conversation that Gavilar is having with two gentlemen, they do talk about going to Braze. And we've heard of Braze before, so just to catch everybody up, if you don't know, Braze is the third planet in the solar system of Roshar. So Roshar, the planet, is the second planet in the solar system, and then Braze is the third one, but that's where the heralds are sent for the desolation, that's where Odium resides, typically, that's where all the fused have been in between desolations, and essentially up until they came back, and so it becomes obvious that here, I think this is the first time that we hear of anybody trying to get to Braze physically. I believe so. I think it's maybe kind of mentioned in like colloquial ways now and then, but never as directly in context as this. And it's funny that the conversation she's overhearing is actually Nail and Kalek being mad at Gavilar because just earlier that same evening, Nail discovered Venli and Ulim together, and he realized that Ulim was on the planet. And he was like, there's no way you got here. You know, you've been here the whole time. You must have just gotten here. And that's when he goes to confront Gavilar. So they're pissed at him. They are not happy that he has basically started to accomplish his goals yeah. of restarting the desolations. And Ulam is the void spren. Yeah. Yes. So many names. And Nail is specifically named by Collect, but we have the descriptions of the two heralds. So as we continue moving forward, I know this is something that confused the shit out of me for the longest time. 
So I specifically took a note. So nail is typically described with the crescent-shaped birthmark, which is specifically mentioned here. Also, he's described as a Maccabacchi wearing a black coat. So he's the Herald of Justice. So he's a member of the Skybreakers, the only Herald that did that. And so you do see him periodically throughout trying to administer justice. And then Kalek, he founded the Order of the Will Shapers, which we know Venley and Eshenai were members of. He's typically described as a shorter Alethi here. In this book, he's described as a foreign man with a round face and a small nose. And he's very obsessed with other worlds and really just wants to leave Rashar, which we hear him as he's exiting saying, like, just wants to leave. Kind of going crazy over it. He's also the one at End of Rhythm of War. He's the one that judges Adolin. So that's where we get a lot of interactions with him. So we know Collect's game. He wants to leave. He wants to leave the planet. He's scared of Odin. He wants to get out of here. What is Nail's game at this point? He's playing with Gavilar because he knows he's going to die tonight. He told the singers about Zeth. He even says something here. Like Gavilar's like, we can speak later. And Nail says, no, I doubt that. <laughs> he, like, he knows he's going to die. What is Nail's <laughs> game playing along Gavilar? Why is he even bothering to humor him at this point? So wasn't there a point where Nail said that he didn't have the justification yet because he's all about the rule of law. So he doesn't yet have an actual justification to carry out that justice that he wants. But he's kind of doing it in a roundabout way. Yeah, he's cheating a little bit by bypassing the paperwork by basically saying, hey, go buy this guy who will do the job for you. Go buy Zeth. He'll kill him. That way he doesn't have to go through all of his own mental hangups as far as I have to get this paperwork filled out. I have to do this to the T to the law. Otherwise, <laughs> which you know. drives me crazy in all of his yeah, POVs. There is no just like, oh, my yeah. God, can you just stop? There is no lawful way to kill a king in a monarchy. He's the top. He is the law. The king is the yeah. embodiment of the law for all intents and purposes. So, and he might have even been there on like recon, like detecting, you know, budding radiance of of Yasna. I think that there was a brief interaction with them where he stares at her a little bit longer, and so he definitely has his own motives for being there that night. But we don't really know quite what they are. Definitely, Kalek was probably there because earlier the evening he had met with a bunch of the Sons of Honor, giving them a status update. So we could assume that maybe he was there for that as well in some capacity, but. There just seemed to be heralds all over the place that night, so. <laughs> yeah, and you had previously mentioned the ash, so. Yeah, th- it was noted that the um, Shalash statue was conspicuously missing, and they're like, oh, I thought he was a good foreign man. Why would he only have nine of the ten? Uh, Seth said that, yeah. That's right, yeah, that's right. So, we know that she's there, and obviously Jezreen's there, because he's crazy old man in the Beggar's Feast. So there's four potential nine that could be there. And again, one of the reasons I went through the descriptions is because frequently throughout the books, you just get the description of somebody and you have to put the dots together in your head. This is who XYZ person is. And if you just miss those details, like I did when I was reading them through the first time, like I had no idea what was going on. So confused. So let's now shift. So we talked a little bit about Braze and the Heralds. Let's talk about these strange colored spheres that Navani fixates on for a little bit. I, I've wondered if obviously we know about the anti-light and also void light being in there, potentially with void spren in them as well. But you have to wonder if there's any other types of investiture on there from other planets, like if there's like preservation light in there some in some capacity or, or some other types of light from other planets where they've been able to convert it or capture it in some capacity because they're just 
they're described and like, they're so varying. And we only know what two of them really were for sure. So trying to find the description. From the books, on the table between Gavilar and the men lay a group of spheres and gemstones. Nivani's breath caught as she saw them. They were arrayed in a variety of colors and brightness, but several seemed strangely off. They glowed with an inverse of light, as if there were little pits of violet darkness sucking in the colors around them. And so that's usually attributed to the violet darkness... And the sucking in light is both attributed to void light and anti-void light. She mentioned several colors, though. I mean, Stormlight's one color. She would know what if it was Stormlight. She sees that every day. So there must be more magic systems at work here. It might have just been an array of gemstones, though. Because Stormlight does go into all the different types of gems. It'd be interesting to know whether they were just, you know, either void light or anti-light in different gemstones that kind of test out their properties. Or maybe, you know, other investitures prefer different types of gemstones the same way that Spren do in a way. You know, there's so much openness still to kind of figure out as far as those types of things are concerned. And we're getting there, but very slowly. Do you guys have any theories about where Gavilar and or Nail and Collect got the void light and anti-void light? I've wondered if maybe there's someone maybe that maybe they, they live in Shadesmar or maybe a different planet where they're doing the experiments that basically we see later on in this book, you know, where they're messing with the tones and figuring out how to isolate it using aluminum in some capacities or, or you know, they figure out those same types of advancements that we're seeing now maybe they've been a bit ahead of it at that point could even be like the irie how do you pronounce that the irie the irie yeah the the cellians that are basically taking up residence somewhere in the cognitive realm that we see in the secret history stuff so they seem to have pretty advanced technology and we see seons popping up all over the place so it's hard to know how much they're meddling and maybe they've made some of those advances yeah a lot of that will be answered in book five prologue <laughs> fingers crossed the only other thing i thought of specifically for the void light since nail and collect were present at ba Edo mishram's binding to the perfect gemstone maybe somehow she left behind some void light and Maybe Nail and Collect just had it, and they brought it to the Sons of Honor, maybe. Again, there's no foundation for that theory, but shrug. It's as good as an answer as anyone could have at this point. It's so open that... It is unknown. That could just as well be the case. For sure. But who knew enough about anti-void light to even knew it existed to get it from somewhere? I mean, that's what the whole fourth book is about. The fuse don't know how to make it. The humans don't at this point. Who made that? Yeah, and even though there's that famous Artifabrian there, I feel like if he had been the one that created anti-void light, he would have continued to make anti-void light just out of scientific curiosity. So it seems just the fact that you don't see it ever again from this famous Artifabrian that he was not the one that made it. I think someone mentioned like moving something over in a small box or something like that, how they were able maybe to get the void spread off of Bray's. And I wondered if that was something like maybe they used aluminum in some capacity to sever connection to actually transport it. I think it's right here. But from the book, it was impossible only a few short years ago, a deep, powerful voice, Gavilar. This is proof. The connection is not severed and the box allows for travel. Not yet as far as you'd like, but we must start the journey somewhere. So it's not really carrying light. Yeah, so it's that box. Maybe that's how they were able to sneak Ulim or those void light gems off of Braze. They were able mm-hmm. to fill them at Braze and bring them off planet with that box was basically what they were trying to figure out and collect wants to use some kind of box like that mm-hmm. to be able to leave the planet potentially. <laughs> yeah, especially collect. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like, please, please just shove me into a box and I will just... He wants to GTFO. <laughs> I think the only other thing I wanted to cover was just opposite of what Gavilar believes of Snavani. She is doing her job as queen. She is putting her desires aside and running the household, running the kingdom, running everything. So Gavilar, ironically, from what he said about her, He's able to go off and do all of these other things because she is literally taking care of everything for him. Yeah, the kingdom probably would have crumbled years ago if she hadn't been there. It just goes to show just how deeply unappreciative he was of even that he's the king, he gets what he wants. It's like a very common marital problem on the level of a kingdom. All right, and then I think we're getting ready for the readout now. So I was thinking the last three paragraphs would be good. Yes, this is right after she realizes she's not looking very good rifling through his pockets. <laughs> Someone in the room coughed, and she became suddenly cognizant of how it looked for her to be rifling through his pockets. Navani took the spheres from her hair, put them in the pouch, then folded it into his hand before resting her forehead on his broken chest. That would appear as if she were returning gifts to him, symbolizing her light becoming his as he died. Then, with blood on her face, she stood up and made a show of composing herself. Over the next hours, organizing the chaos of a city turned upside down, she worried she'd get a reputation for callousness. Instead, people seemed to find her sturdiness comforting. The king was gone. But the kingdom lived on. Gavilar had left this life as he'd lived it, with grand drama that afterward required Navani to pick up the pieces. Thank you for joining us today. As always, journey before destination. And we hope you'll return to Rashar with us again next time.